You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of Genesis. Good evening and welcome. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4 as we are continuing our study through this book. We're in verse 3. I want to read through from verse 3 to verse 10 of chapter 4 in Genesis. And now that you've gotten comfortable, would you stand with me as we read this together? Yeah, it's kind of our liturgy, up, down, up, down, yeah. Okay. Verse 3, it begins once again. In the course of time, Cain brought some, some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. We might literally say dejected, depressed, sulking in self-pity to give you just the picture. Not that you've ever done it yourself. But. <laughs> and then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Let's start with prayer. Father, I ask as we continue through our study of this book and we look at your words that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. You'd help us to not only understand what we're reading, Lord, but to understand why it matters, why we should be concerned, and why we need to focus on this testimony. We just pray for your help in this, Lord, as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated for real this time. In the previous three chapters, we've presented really three key characters in the account of Scripture. The first of all, we have God who in the beginning is identified as Elohim in the Hebrew. literally means the, the Almighty, the all-powerful God, and it's a term that we specifically refer to as God the Creator. He's the maker of the heavens and earth. And what he's really telling us in that very first chapter of Genesis is that He is God and we are not. I mean, it's a very clear, simple message. But He not only creates the earth and the heavens, He sustains them, He maintains them, and he is known to us as the all-good, the all-powerful God. He is the very… And at the very center of His creation, as we've studied, is mankind. We are the primary beneficiary of all of His goodness uh, around whom everything has been created to meet our needs. But then we were introduced in chapter 3 to the second key character in the story, which was Satan or the serpent as he was personified. He is the personification of evil and of sin. He is expelled and condemned, and he manifests his characteristic of evil in his interaction with mankind. In fact, Jesus would say later on in John 8, he says that of the devil that he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and the father of all lies. And so Jesus very clearly says he's a murderer. There's no truth in anything he says. He is a liar and the father of all lies, so that we shouldn't put any credence upon anything that he might say. But what the enemy does, as we studied, he sets out to destroy what God holds most precious, which is, in fact, mankind that he created to be the master over the earth, at least initially. But when Adam and Eve believed what the serpent said, they acted upon his lies, then mankind slips from being the master to being the slave. And he's not the slave of God, at least initially, but rather he's a slave of the dynamic of sin that now predominates in his character, in his personality, so that mankind the master becomes mankind the sinner. And not only is he designated that by his actions, but we find by very birth and nature, as, as David would later say in Psalm 51, he says, surely I was sinful at birth, 
sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And it's, it's hard for us to visualize because we look at little ch children, and to us they are the definition of what is innocence. And yet there lies within them that potentiality of sin, and you don't really see it until they turn two. And then you have no question that they are a sinner. Uh, you're just glad that the personality or the person that comes out at two isn't 18 and still doing the same thing. But the reality is that he says this is something that when we are conceived, that conception takes place, that spark of life within the womb, they're already as if it's genetically coded in the human character to be sinners. And that means essentially to be askance with God. And this sinning becomes mankind's new lifestyle, our most defining characteristic. I mean, although usually we claim to be relatively righteous people, that's how we would like to portray ourselves, it's really that portrayal is based on kind of a biased comparison as we compare ourselves to those who are the worst among us. I mean, we say things like, well, at least I'm not as bad as, or at least I've never done. But every one of us, when we're viewed under the microscopic lens of God's purity, His perfection, and His holiness, becomes, as David would later say in Psalm 39, man at his best state is altogether vanity. At my very best, literally that word vanity means a, a transitory and unsatisfactory. In other words, I, I'm going to pass away very quickly. My time, my tenure on earth is very short. And besides that, that time that I live here, I never live up to what I really have as an expe expectation for my own self. And here's the truth of it, that every person when they come to the last days of their life, whether they're at 20 or they're at 120, has within them this awareness that somehow I did many things wrong and many things I wish I had done differently. And if you don't believe me, talk to somebody my age and they'll tell you the truth. It's just the reality, the longer you live, not only do you have opportunities to learn and to grow, but you also have lots of opportunities to fail. And so as a consequence, man, when he comes to the end of his life, doesn't sit back and say, man, I, I'm so impressed with how I did. I'm so stoked by the way I live my life. I mean, who has been like me? I mean, anybody who says that is, is a raving lunatic, and you don't listen to anything they say before or after that. Because the honest appraisal is, you know, I may have done the best I know how to do, and, but I can begin to point out how many things I did wrong. I remember when my own mother was right in her last days, and my daughter asked her, saying, well, Grandma... Tell me about your life. Well, I'll, I'll tell you about my life. Tell me what you did wrong. Tell me the worst thing you ever did. And she looked at her and said, I'm not telling you. <laughs> I thought, okay, <laughs> that's good. Thank you. Uh, but, but we have to realize that that is the condition that we're in. And this, is, this becomes the new reality. And this new reality necessitated in, a sense, necessitated, in a sense, a change of the nature of God's relationship with us. Not a change in the nature of God, per se, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But it changed how man, God relates to man and how He relates to us, that He moves from being primarily Creator, which He still is, but He also now becomes, of necessity, our Redeemer. We talked about that last week, how that... When man sinned, man went from a condition of seeking God to a man who really becomes man the hider. He's hiding from God. We, he's covering, he's denying, he's blaming God and others for his actions. And although God would have been justified in destroying mankind that he had made in that moment, God instead chooses to begin the process of redemption. And this is really, again, the underlying theme of the Bible, God's plan for redemption of mankind. And it's sad when we, we don't read that. If you just read the book of Leviticus and that's the end of your Bible study, or the guy I talked to one time and he, he was debating with me about the, the Bible, and I said, well, have you ever read the Bible? And he said, yes. And I said, well, what did you read? Ecclesiastes. Well, I said, you know, that's not going to give you a very rounded perspective 
Because you really have to kind of see the story from Genesis to Revelation, and when you see it in its entirety, you suddenly realize that what God has been about since the moment He fell into sin was to redeem mankind. In fact, the plan for that redemption, as we talked about last week, was set in place before man had the first opportunity to transgress against God's law. But it's important that it's not man that is seeking God, it is God who is seeking man. And the more you go through the Scriptures, the more you see this being brought out if you know to look for it. But this creates a whole change of mission, if you will, revealed even by how God changes His name in terms of the people of Israel and those of us who follow after because he goes from primarily referring to himself as the Elohim, the Almighty, the Majestic, the Wondrous, the Omniscient, Omnipresent God, to now talk, calling himself Yahweh, or, or as, as the old King James translated, Jehovah. Basically, as Isaiah would later say, that all mankind will know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. And I am your Savior and your Redeemer, and I am the Mighty One. The idea that I am your Savior and I am your Redeemer, and not just the Almighty God, but I'm the God who is engaged in a process of bringing you into a state of restored relationship with me. But it's mankind's proclivity for sinning that really remains the ongoing obstacle to that work of redemption, that sin in you and me is like some kind of noxious weed that needs only a scratch of soil and a drop of moisture to suddenly spring up and flourish and spread all over the place. And when it's left uninterrupted, it quickly spreads and it consumes and controls everything and everyone around it. You know, it's kind of like the old game used to play about uh, spreading a rumor. You know, you'd have one person, you'd have a group sit in a circle, and somebody would whisper something in somebody's ear, and then they would whisper it to the next, next person. And when it gets around the circle and comes back, you find the story has been completely changed. It's called network news. But it's like this, you know, it's like <laughs> you just. <laughs> You just go, you know, how did that get like that? But it's kind of like that. It just, it just spreads and takes on a life and a nature all itself. A little leaven, Jesus said, is the way he put it, leavens the whole lump. Those of you who have made bread, you know, you know that it doesn't take a lot of yeast to suddenly blow up the bread into something many times larger than its initial loaf. And that's the way sin is, which is why when it appears in Cain... In this story, the Lord warns, He says to him, sin is crouching at your door. The image is of a lion or some kind of ravenous cat who is looking for prey, waiting for that, that doe or that uh, uh, fawn to come down the trail and leap out upon them, like the coyotes I hear howling at night, waiting to fall on the prowl to rip it apart and destroy it. He says, you have to understand that, that sin is like that. It, it's crouching right there, looking for the opportunity to sink its fangs in you. And he says, its desire is to have you, not just to affect you, but to control you. That sin's desire within us is to completely control and dominate our lives. That's why when we look around us, we see people who slip into certain behaviors and habits and lifestyles that they don't just kind of glance up against those things and then go on through life unchanged or untouched. This is the common misconception we all have about unhealthy living. We just think, well, I'll just kind of dabble in it, I'll touch it, I'll kind of get close to it, but it will never really get its stink on me. It never really take control, and yet how many times it just completely dominates a person's life. I remember speaking with one woman who, uh, it was such a sad story because her husband had a an accident, doing a roof, and he fell off the roof and injured his back. And so the doctors, to help him manage his pain, gave him some Oxycontin. And of course, once he started taking it, he never stopped needing it. And he became addicted, and then when he couldn't get it anymore, he moved on to heroin and the, the drugs that followed after that. And I just remember how she was telling me, here I, I pull up to a stoplight in downtown Spokane after not having seen him for years. And I see this bedraggled, shrunken creature making his way across the crosswalk, and it's my husband, completely consumed and destroyed by the drugs. 
And I think that we, we, we know this story, don't we? we? We all have it touch our own personal lives on one level or another. And we still maintain in our minds somehow that there's a, a, a separation between us and them, that there must be some genetic weakness in them or, or, or some kind of childhood thing that happened to them that warped and changed them. It, it, it allows us not to have to feel not only the heaviness of that issue, but our own vulnerability to it. But the truth of the matter is that it only takes a little leaven to destroy the whole lump. There, there are some things that say do not touch because they're toxic to the touch. And there's a lot of behaviors and things in our life that are just toxic to the touch. We, we lose sight of the fact that sinning is a progressive dynamic. Years ago, James Dobson did a thing on it. It took me years to track it down. I finally have it. I didn't want to take up time. If you need it, I'll send it to you. But it's called The Twelve Steps of an, of an Adulterous Affair. And he goes through and talks about the 12 stages that you go through, that people don't just suddenly meet somebody of the opposite sex and suddenly say, I think we should destroy our lives, our marriages, and our family and have an affair. It, it doesn't just happen like that. It's not like catching the flu. But nonetheless, there are decisions that are made, sinful decisions over and over again, where we just continue to give ourselves permission to go one step further and one step further and suddenly they find themselves completely entangled, and then guilt and shame does the rest on us to bring destruction into our life. But basically the warning to him is, sin is crouching at the door, and the question is, what's the door? What is the door that he's waiting at, that the enemy is waiting at to spring through into your life? You see, we tend to see sin as a behavioral issue. It's, it's something that's outside of us that we have to step out and do as some kind of aberrant expression with only a casual connection to who we are at our best. We like to say things like, well, God knows my heart. And I hate to tell you this, boy, does He. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not very complimentary about it, you know, <laughs> what he says about it. You know, when he told Jeremiah, the, the heart of man is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Now, I can believe that about you, but to believe it about yourself is, is well, you know, it's, it's terrible when you see an oversized garment that you know wouldn't fit and you put it on and it fits like a glove, you know. <laughs> You'd like to say, well, you know, I haven't been feeling well. But the bottom line is, it fits. I mean, it does fit that if I look at myself honestly, I realize that there's this, this dynamic of deceitfulness that goes on all the time. I get up in the morning. I walk into the bathroom. I'm, you know, getting out my shaving stuff. I'm going to take a shower, and I'm looking in the mirror, and I thought, you know, you're really aging well. And then I put my glasses on, and suddenly I see with clarity, and I realize the years have not been kind. They take their toll, and it's kind of like that. There's something within us that would just like to deceive ourselves. I remember a friend of mine who had, at the time, was, had a significant weight issue. And, I mean, he was very, very large, and uh, he lived in San Diego, and he told me, he says, one day I'm uh, rolling skating down the, down the boardwalk in San Diego, you know, trying to do some exercise to lose some weight. And at that time, he was about 450 pounds. And um, so he's a large man. And he says, I see these two really attractive young girls in bikinis walking the other way, and they got a big smile on their face, and they're, you know, walking towards me, and they're looking at me, and I'm thinking to myself, this work, this exercise must be really working out. I'm doing really good. And he says, they get about 10 feet from, they say, hi, Pastor Leo. <laughs> they were part of his church. <laughs> and he said, at that moment, I suddenly realized, I thought I might still have it. I suddenly realized I don't. But there's a kind of a deceptiveness in our hearts, isn't there? That we can lie to ourselves and kid ourselves about all sorts of things, particularly when it comes to sin in our life. We would like to pretend that it's not that bad, that it's not that bad. It's, it's just a little thing. The doorway that He warns us about is the door of our own heart. That's what the Bible calls it. 
The heart is that dynamic the Bible describes that steers us, it controls us, it shapes us, it directs everything we choose, everything we say, everything we do. It's the center of all of our thinking, of all of our emotions, of all of our desires. The Bible speaks of it over 900 times in the Old and New Testament together because it is the thing that most controls us, my heart. And that's why he says that the enemy is really trying to get to that soft point, that if we can call it our Achilles heel, that that point in which if he can reach us there, he can take control of the entirety of our being and eventually the entirety of our life. And that's why, you know, the heart which can be the source of of a lot of good, I I think it's wrong to assume that nothing good comes out of people's hearts, but it also can be the source of great evil, whether it's great, big or small. Whether it's the evil that, you know, three UCLA basketball players get caught up in Beijing stealing from a San Lorenzo store trying to shoplift. I don't know if you followed that in the news. Or it's some guy who's sitting in the Mandalay Bay with a bump stock and shooting at innocent people down below. It's, it, it's, it's, it comes out of the same dimension. It comes out of the same heart. It just becomes really a, a, a difference of degree. And I'm not saying that there's a moral equivalency between those two extremes, but nonetheless, it's something we need to understand that what starts as a small thing can often escalate into a much bigger thing, that little lies and little deceptions can eventually turn into a a life of deception and dishonesty. I've never known anybody who was ever uh, busted for embezzlement, and I have known a few, Whoever started stealing a lot, they usually started by borrowing a little to get them through a tough time. And somehow they get behind that eight ball and it just never stops. And then one day to their own amazement, when they're exposed, they're sitting there in shock saying, I had no idea I had taken so much, far beyond anything I can repay. Jesus warned us, he said, you know, it's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts, comes murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, and the all. What all these things describe is really various positions that the heart can take. But the first and original position of the heart that God created, the position He created us for, was a heart of worship. And that's something that gets lost when we look at all the the evil that's in the world. We lose sight of the fact that we were created initially with a heart that was designed to reverence God, to worship God, to focus on Him. That worship essentially is what you and I were made for. And we worship the things that we esteem, the things we value, the things that we think are the most important. And and you can trace whatever it is that you're most in love with, what you worship the most intensely, by simply looking at what you dedicate your time to or dedicate your money to or your energy to, what you strive to gain, maintain, and attain in your life. Those are the things that become the object of your worship. I'm not saying that That's all I can do is pursue that object of worship, but it's interesting because there are some things that we have to do just to maintain our place in the world. There are other things that we do with our expendable time and energy and money and resources, and that really reveals the objects of our worship. Because what sin does and what it did was it replaced God as the object of worship and transform that to being worship of me. And what sin seeks to do is displace God as the central object of my worship, to replace Him with something else that, whether it be power or pleasure or position or possessions, we may see ourselves expressing ourselves in those ways, but the person who does that is really seeking to use those things to enhance their own self. That ultimately we can talk about, well, they worship money or they worship power, but in the end what they really worship is themselves. This was Adam and Eve's transgression, we recall, right? I will become like God if I sin against God. And that dynamic hasn't changed. How can I live with total autonomy where I am the center of the universe, that everything revolves around me? Essentially, it's the sin of pride. 
I'm, I was so glad when I stopped having pride in my life. It's something I'm proud of. That kind of victory doesn't come easy. You have to be extra special. What Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel didn't recognize at this point was that the sinful passion is something that's hereditary. When, when Moses talks in Deuteronomy 5 about the sins of the fathers to the, that carried forth the third and the fourth generation, that we, we need to understand, if we don't already understand, that we are passing off to our children and our grandchildren things that are good and some things that aren't so good. <laughs> we may be teaching them things that really will serve them no value and other things that may even be harmful and not even knowing it because it's had such a presence in our life and we came by it honestly. We inherited it from our parents because understand that the first 12 years of your life, you are a passive learner. Children grow up watching their parents not judging or analyzing or evaluating the value of what they're doing or saying or how they're living, and a kid grows up in that environment, and whatever that environment is, that's normal. The fact that my parents had separate careers and separate lives and stayed in separate bedrooms and took separate vacations, to me, was absolutely normal until I got married and, and found out that my wife's family had the opposite orientation. They actually did stuff together. <laughs> and I realized that my whole way of thinking and feeling was just different, that there was something dysfunctional in the way that I had lived my life and I understood how life should be lived. But you see, we, we absorb that and it, it takes hold in our lives. And so it is that as parents, it's a terrible thing because as Robert Samuelson once said, I have this terrible fear that one day I'm going to discover that I destroyed my child. And, the, and, and just to make you feel better, he's right, you have. <laughs> and when they hit the teen years, they'll remind you. But the whole simple thing is that we learn these things because we have a hereditary disposition towards sinning that we, it's easy for us to observe and mimic and learn and follow those same patterns. I remember when my oldest son and I did a, spoke at a pastor's conference together. It was kind of a, it was a conference on basically one of the things that troubles most pastors is how do you keep from ruining your kids by becoming part of the ministry? And... Uh, one of the guys asked my son, he said, well, how is it that you grew up as a pastor's son and became a pastor? What was, how did that work? And it was an interesting thing. He said a couple of things that were really kind of enlightening to me. He says, you know, when I was growing up, people would always ask me, well, what's your dad really like at home? <laughs> and he said, like he's here? I mean, it's like, you know, there wasn't this duplicity, you know, like two people and you don't know which one you're coming in, which is always a dangerous thing to be one thing in one place and something in another. But the other thing that really encouraged my heart, he says, I just remember growing up and walking past my dad's study, and he was sitting there with the Bible open and reading it, or he'd be on his knees praying, and I just saw that as being normal. And you begin to realize that these kind of things that you may not even be thinking of, in fact, the things that I didn't even notice or remember were the things that were most indelible in his life and things that I thought were really defining moments he didn't remember. The great things I was doing to be a great dad, he didn't recall any of those things. Just goes to show you how ungrateful they are. But what we need to understand is that we are passing that on. And, and Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve, they didn't have any awareness of sin being something that was being passed on passively by observance. And the reason I say that is when we look at Cain's behavior, what we need to understand is he mimics his parents, except he takes it further. It's not surprising that we find Cain doing this. I mean, He's just walking in the same footsteps of mom and dad, which were the same footsteps that the serpent walked in, and it's the issue of pride. I like the way the New Living Translation translates this particular passage when he says, Cain brought to the Lord a gift of his produce, while Abel brought several choice lambs from the best of his flocks. Herein you have the difference not only in how we approach God, but what we understand to be religion. 
Religion versus worship, if you will. Because religion thinks that you come with a gift for God. And you know how it is when somebody gives you a gift? Don't you immediately feel obligated to return the gift? You know, it's, it's one of those kind of things that you just think, well, it's, they've given it to me, so therefore I have to turn around, I have to give them a gift, and then this leads to this perpetual bondage of having to buy each other a gift for the rest of our lives. And he gives him a gift which is the produce of his hand, the works of his labors. And he gives this to God in the expectation that God will see that and return in kind And that comes from the idea of being proud of what I have produced. But what we find Abel doing is giving the best of the flock. The implications, I think, is that Cain may have reserved the first and the best and the choicest for himself, and he gave God what was expendable, what was the leftovers. Have you ever noticed this about yourself? It's easy to give out of your abundance. It's really hard to give out of your poverty. It's easy to give to somebody else when you've got plenty to spare. Hey, help yourself. i got plenty. It's hard when you're looking and saying, well, this is all i got. I'm going to give you half. That's a challenge. And that's one of the things I think with Cain. He, you know, he, was, pretty, he was pretty satisfied with what he had. But when we look at Abel, he comes and gives the best of what he has. And it's interesting to see his response because what he displays is something that James referred to as selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. It's an interesting phrase in the original because it really implies the idea that I'm I'm giving out of a desire to reach a certain end. James put it this way, he says, everything that's evil comes out of these things, selfish ambition and bitter envy. And one comes out of the other, by the way, and I'll explain in a moment. But what selfish ambition does is it shorts out God's passion and replaces itself with passion for what I want. It's the desire, literally, in the original, to put forth yourself ahead of everyone else. In fact, the first time it's ever used, as we know of, at least written down in Greek language, was written by Aristotle, and he referred to it as somebody who would do anything to win political office. Thank God times have changed. So he'd do anything to win political office. That's how Aristotle used the word. And it came to be this idea that I will just look at the goal that I want to reach, and there are no boundaries. There are no limits. There's no thing that I won't do in order to accomplish what I want to get. And this selfish ambition is something that, that rests inside of him. And it's, it's interesting that Cain saw the blessing of God when he brings his offering as something that was deserving He was the firstborn. He was the one who was the quote-unquote promised child that God said would deliver them from the bondage of the evil one. And what we need to understand about ourselves is whatever we believe we deserve, soon we will demand. Whatever we believe that we deserve, we will soon begin to demand that it be given to us. So when you find yourself saying things, how could they do that to me? What I'm saying is I deserve something, and now I'm in a sense demanding that they respond to me in the way that I deserve. See, Cain brought his offering because that's what he was required to do. That's what religion does. Religion says you do these certain things because these are required of you. But Abel had a different view. He came looking at what he was honored to do, what he was being enabled by God to do, not something that he earned or was obligated to fulfill. I believe that Abel knew he deserved nothing because that's the basis of grace. What he desired was mercy. What he desired was grace. What he desired was forgiveness. And because of that humility of heart, We're told that God found pleasure in what He brought to him in contrast to what Abel or Cain believed was owed to him. 
James tells us about this whole idea that selfish ambition, when it's unfulfilled, when it's thwarted, produces bitter envy. The word bitter envy there literally, literally means kind of an acrid, bitter, fierce, vengeful resentment. With Cain, and I think we've seen it, every one of us in our own selves, it begins with disappointment. We're let down. And that's followed by depression, and depression creates anger, and anger produces rage. And rage finally expresses itself in vengeance if it's not escaped. And ultimately, it will lead to murder. It will lead to, lead to a savagery of behavior. I was explaining to some of the guys the other day about growing up, the high school that I grew up in. It was a... It, status was based upon fighting, literally fighting. And I remember as a freshman, my brother and his friends who were all part of the, this kind of mafia in the school, a bunch of really scary guys who had beards in, in junior high, you know. Uh, and they thought that they needed to help me toughen up and so they would line up fights for me after school. <laughs> and so, I mean, I was, you know, spent those first couple of weeks in school just getting the, uh, the crappie beat out of me. And I, that was just from fishing. And, <laughs> and uh, I remember one day I, I was in this fight with a guy who was twice my size. And, and you know, I, I take off my jack and I turn around and he, bam, hits me right in the nose, right in the face, and I go reeling back. And then it's all, you know, like two cats going at each other, wildly swinging and all this stuff. And I don't know what happened. Someplace in the melee, he slipped and fell down and hit the ground. I jumped on top of him and started pouting him with everything that was in me. And as I'm sitting there beating on his face, this guy reaches over to me and hands me a hammer. And I remember I stopped and I thought, if I do that, I will kill this guy. And that brief moment gave him enough chance to knock me off and then get on top of me and beat the crap out of me, the fish out of me. Uh, but the bottom line was that, that murderous moment, you know, I can sit here today and say, thank God I didn't take the offer. But I thought about it. There was that moment where I thought, this will be the advantage. Now, I don't want to give the idea that I grew up in some really strange, dysfunctional environment. <laughs> Just because my teachers predicted I had a life behind bars, it doesn't mean they were right. But you see, I think what, what we fail to see or hear is, is that God was trying to teach Cain something by letting something bad happen. And that's what he's doing in your life and my life. I mean, when he says, if you do what is right, you'll be accepted. Don't you realize that was a teaching moment? That was a learning opportunity for Cain. He says, if you do not do what is right, sin will gain the advantage and you'll suffer as a result of it. And the reason that stands out so powerfully to me is because I've been at that moment and done the same thing that Cain did. Instead of stepping back and saying, what is it that I need to learn from what's happening? I just simply say, no, I've got to get my revenge. You see, pride renders us unteachable. That Cain didn't believe there was anything that he needed to learn. What he needed was someone to blame. And that's the whole importance of seeing sin as something that's inside of me as opposed to something outside that happens to me. Because when we think it's just out there, then we never really look inside and realize that there are things that God allows in our life because he's trying to get our attention. He's trying to speak into our lives in powerful ways. The worse the experience, the more powerful the message is the more horrible the tragedy, the deeper the grace that God extends to us if we think about it. So that when we see these series of tragedies around our nation, our, our first thought is, what's wrong with these people? And we'll identify some, 
subgroup, whether real or in our own mind, and we'll begin to say, they're the cause, and this is a... And, and I have found that there are so many things to blame that I run out of markers to mark them all. But that doesn't change anything, and it doesn't fix anything. It doesn't resolve anything. It's only when we as individuals step back and say, what is it in me? Where is that murderous attitude in my heart? You see, God wanted him to learn that Good things come to those who choose to give them. But as Paul would say to the Romans in Romans 9, 15, nobody deserves anything. We don't deserve anything. I don't know about you. That, I do know about you. That's, that's one of the hardest things in the world for me to get my mind around. I cannot help but think, well, I deserve at least that. But yet he says, I don't deserve anything. The fact that I'm still here and sucking air and pumping blood is already more than I deserve. But the more we really understand that, the more we are walking in a yieldedness to God that enables us to realize, as Paul would later say to the Corinthians, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. Paul didn't say, I am what I am because of my Jewish heritage. I am, be was, I am because I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am what I am because I was trained under the greatest theologians, Gamaliel and the best of, that Israel had to offer. I am what I am because I was part of that upper class of the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jewish people. I am because I was a rabbi. I am because... No, he didn't. He says, there's only one thing that I can point to to say why I am what I am, and that's because God was gracious. And the deeper that truth penetrates your life and my life, not only the more joyful we'll become in our life, but the more effective we'll become in our relationship with other people. You see, pride can't handle that. <laughs> It has to be able to congratulate itself. It, it has to preen in the bright, bright light of accomplishment and applause. I love what David Duplessis one time said. He said, pride will, or compliments, or flattery, excuse me, he said, flattery will never hurt you as long as you don't suck it in. But he says, if you suck it in, it's toxic. When pride is blocked by the shadow of someone else's accomplishments, its only option, at least as it can see, is to eliminate the thing that's blocking it. In Cain's mind, only one son of Adam could be the promised child, could be the blessed one, and that was he, the firstborn. It was his by right of inheritance. Hadn't his parents told him, yes, I prayed for a son and God gave me you, Cain, I can't help but think that being like most moms, she probably always reminding you, you're special, Cain. You're special. But when the blessing fell upon Abel, Abel became the competition. And the competition had to be eliminated. What he perceived as injustice and unfairness had to be rectified. So he murdered his brother. And he did it without even feeling bad about it, which is really the kind of amazing thing. It's almost like in his act, he's saying, how dare he take my place? How dare he become the favorite one or the favored one? And just like his parents, after he had done this dastardly deed, he seeks to hide his sin by burying it under the ground and then going on as if nothing has happened. I think nothing tells us more about his lack of spirituality than the thought that he could hide his sin from God. Even though later on Moses would tell the children of Israel in Numbers 32, he said, you know, be sure that your sin will find you out. The man or woman who isn't really walking in relationship with God 
does really think that they can do things and there's never going to be a re- that, that thing is never going to come back. If nobody knows about it, hey, Pharaoh, if nobody knows I did it, what difference does it make? It's as if it never happened. But the truth of the matter is that there is somebody who knows about it. There is somebody who was an eyewitness. There is somebody who was watching the whole thing and not only knows what you did, but he knows the deepest, darkest motives of your heart behind why you did it. And that's God. And that reality first scares us because we fear the accountability, but it also can be the thing that drives us to the place of saying, God, please forgive me. Because when I confess that to God and I ask for His forgiveness, that is also the moment in which it is removed. As David would later say in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our sin from us. So there are certain things that you and I have to get past. We have to get past the idea that we're not that sinful being and we don't have those things in our life. We have to come to that place where we recognize, you know, man at his very best is altogether vanity. And so even when I'm doing the best that I've ever done as a Christian, it still falls so far short of the greatness, the grandeur, and the glory of God that he would perfectly be justified to fry me on the spot and send me to H-E-double-L double health, uh, hockey sticks, you know. I deserve that. But God, who is so great in His love and His mercy, simply says, if you live with an attitude of heart saying, God, I, I humble myself in Your sight and I, and I ask You for Your mercy and Your kindness, that He not only forgives that, but He removes that as being a defining characteristic and, and a quality of your life, that you in his eyes at that moment become pure and without spot and without blemish. All things are visible to the invisible God who makes all things visible to the man or the woman who wants to truly see God. And that becomes the ultimate tragedy of this story. That even after Cain had done everything that he had done, you know, again, we never read a word of him ever saying, God, forgive me for what I've done. I don't know. If he'd done that, maybe the Bible would have been shorter. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'd be in heaven right now. We wouldn't even be doing this. But we don't ever read of him ever saying, we see what's later on Paul would describe as worldly sorrow. He was regretful for the circumstance and the consequences, but he never seemed to ever pull together the fact that, as David would say later in Psalm 51, Against you alone, Lord, have I sinned. That after David commits adultery with Bathsheba and murders Uriah to cover his sin and is finally exposed a year later, that he realizes, where did this all go wrong? Where it went wrong was when sin was crouching at the door of my heart, I, was, I didn't take warning, I didn't take care, and I let him grab me in my heart. That first moment when I looked over the parapet of my palace and I saw Bathsheba bathing out there in the middle of the moonlight, instead of saying, whoa, (laughs) change channel, I lingered. And I think David went through all 12 steps (laughs) until finally sin took hold of his life. And I think the same thing happened with Cain. It's a short story for us, and yet I'm convinced that he went through a process till basically feeling disappointed and depressed and discouraged ended up becoming rage and vengeful murder. It's a progressive thing in in everyone's life, and that's why when when God shows us things in ourselves, uh, uh, no matter how small or petty or isolated we would like to think they are, how important it is to simply come with them to the throne of grace and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for that jealousy. Forgive me for that resentment. Forgive me for being offended. Forgive me for taking issue with that. Forgive me with thinking those things about that person. Simply because, and and some of you are saying, boy, this is kind of going to be kind of OCD. But the important thing is that I don't, we got to be careful we don't let these things become, to grow in our hearts because they will, left unaddressed, It'll grow, and it'll grow, and it'll grow, and and resentment will become bitterness, and bitterness will become malice, and malice will become vengeance, and vengeance will become murderous. 
and even the point where I've seen Christians delighting in the imagination of seeing a brother or a sister get what they deserve. And I think, wow. Couldn't hear that coming out of the mouth of Jesus. <laughs> Lord, should we call down fire from heaven? You got it, John. Let the fire fall. Give them what they deserve. <laughs> no, he said, he said John, you, you don't know what spirit you're listening to right now. But we do know what, don't we? John 8, 44. He's a murderer, he's a liar, and he never tells the truth. That's the spirit that provokes that kind of response. Lord, help us to be sensitive to those things that we give place to in our lives. Father, I just pray that you would do that indeed. I, I pray it for myself. I confess, Lord, it's... It's a, it's a thing that I have to deal with every day, and I, I feel comfortable saying that with everyone here because I know that they do too. We live in a world with so many things that can easily offend us, and we are so often filled with such a sense of our own importance or our own neediness. We, we walk around thinking we deserve to be treated in, in a certain way. We deserve to be looked at or handled or and when it doesn't happen, we take offense. Somebody's rude to us. Somebody's unkind. Somebody's disrespectful or just forgetful and neglectful of something we think is important. And we become offended, Lord. Help us to become so tuned into those things, Lord, that we would not allow one weed to grow in our garden but we would pluck it up through the confession and a prayer and the asking of forgiveness, Lord. Never let us excuse not loving one another. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You want to stand as we close?